Chapter 26 of The Cruise of the Falcon by E. F. Knight. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 26 Our Adventures at Regoa. The Falcon lay at anchor a whole month off Asuncion before we commenced our downward voyage. During this time, we made many pleasant excursions into the interior of this beautiful country and saw a good deal of the manners and customs of this simple people but it will be sufficient to describe but one or two of these expeditions in order to convey some idea to my readers of what life in Paraguay is. Like all others who visit Asuncion, we took train to Paraguari, which is the terminus of the line. Lopez intended this railway to connect the capital with Villa Rica, but only 42 miles were laid down before the war broke out. So it remains half-finished and most dilapidated like all other of the tyrant's works. The railway station at Asuncion is, of course, a most ambitious structure, with a splendid colonnade and frieze like a Grecian temple, and might be as old as the Parthenon, judging from its wrecked appearance. It overlooks a great square, one of those wildernesses of red sands and weeds that characterize this city, and much add to its appearance of utter desolation. The train leaves the capital at 6 a.m. every other morning. We found two first-class carriages, one of which we occupied. It was dirty and ragged with no glass in one window and no cushions. This had been the state carriage of Lopez, which he used when he traveled. There were open trucks attached to the train, in which, with bare legs dangling over the sides, were huddled up a chattering, laughing mass of women. The railway traverses a lovely country, undulating and many-fountained. This Paraguay is indeed the land of running water. There seemed to be a fairly large population, but chiefly of squatters, among these verdant hills. Pretty little quintas and hunts, with long sloping thatched roofs, peeped out of the glorious groves of oranges and citrons and fruit and flower at the same time. The air was heavy with the perfume of these, mingling with that of many flowers, and the ground was strewn everywhere with the golden fruit. The little one-roomed houses nestled among the oranges, bananas, and papas, each surrounded with its little plantation of cassava, and the women and plump naked children played or swung in their hammocks outside, in the indolent manner of their race, smoking, of course, a land of unsurpassed fertility, whose happy inhabitants have, at any rate, always a sufficiency of food, and whose mild climate renders clothing not a necessary of life. Many tall palms rose above the orange trees, and in places the hillside was one mass of bright pink, with the blossom of that noble tree, the lapacho, a species of greenheart, whose hard wood is in request for shipbuilding. Above the more or less cultivated plains and lower slopes rose in the background great domed hills, clothed to the summit with virgin forests. On our left hand lay the extensive lake of Ipacare, which the railway skirts for many leagues. Beyond it is a dark range of mountains, the Cordillera, much infested by tigers, but at whose base a German colony has recently been established. At each station that we stopped at was a curious crowd of women who vended fruit, cakes, bits of pork, lace, and what not to the passengers. The remarkable tidiness and cleanliness of these Guarani women, not only in their persons, but also in the manner they prepare these refreshments for sale, is also very worthy of remark. 
I believe the Paraguayans are the cleanest people in the world, as well as the most good-tempered. It was very cheerful to see the happy, innocent ways of the childlike little women at the railway stations. We bought some oranges of one, whereon she insisted on decorating us all with flowers in her gratitude. At last we reached the station of Paraguari. In front of us were two isolated mountains, between which a strong wind nearly always sweeps. The little town is on an eminence, and like all these old mission villages, consists of one grass-grown square, a dead and alive place, silent and strange, that commands a wonderful view over a great plain of pasture and waving palms traversed by silver streams that stretches to a far range of blue mountains. On this railway, there is a little settlement called Eregoa, to which we paid rather an interesting visit that is worth recording. We were accompanied by an Englishman who knew the jefe or chief man of the place, so we determined to give a baile to the population, a very good way indeed of acquiring knowledge of the manners and customs of this people. Accordingly, we left Asuncion one morning by the usual 6 a.m. train, taking with us a couple of demijohns of wine and some beer for the proposed entertainment. At the station of Liuki, we stopped for some minutes, so we purchased from the crowd of women that always awaits the train here some provisions for ourselves, bits of pork and roast parrots laid out on plates with snowy napkins on them, oranges, bananas, and a sufficiency of chipa, or Paraguayan bread, which is very excellent and is made of mandioca flour and eggs. The station of Eregoa is some little distance from the town, which is on a height above it. So we placed our provisions on the heads of some dozen laughing women who served as porteresses in this land of Amazons and proceeded the procession up a steep, grassy hill. We found Eregoa to be a very typical old mission settlement and beautifully situated, as are all towns founded by the clever Jesuits. It is built on a sort of terrace in the mountain. Behind rise steep domes clothed with forests and groves of citron and orange. In front of it, the land falls down in a grassy slope to the cultivated plain that the railway crosses, beyond which stretches the broad lake of Ipacare, backed by the dark cordilleras, an extensive and magnificent view and the town is so laid out that from every house this fair prospect can be commanded, for it is built in a square of which the houses fill three sides, the fourth, that opening on the lake, being left open. The houses are all similar, whitewashed and containing two rooms each, one looking on the square, the other onto a little garden behind. The doors of all the houses open out onto a common veranda or colonnade that is carried right around the three sides of the square, and which is paved with the strange pentagonal basaltic stones that are found in the Cerro of Aregua, a steep peak that towers above the settlement. The center of the square, like the slope in front of it, is grass-grown, common pasture for the animals of the town folk. In the lovely evenings of this country, the gossips are wont to sit out on this veranda to talk, smoke, and enjoy the fresh breeze that comes over the lake. There is a church that looks like a barn in the middle of the square, and some way off an erection like a guillotine or some instrument of torture, and indeed it is the latter, for this skeleton scaffolding is no less than the belfry, and at short intervals during the day it is customary for two naked boys to scramble therein and ring the bells in most energetic style. After walking round this square, 
we found that the population of Aregua may be roughly described as two storekeepers, the jefe, the parson, the carpenter, and many women who occupy their time for the most part in making cigars and lace. On calling on the jefe, we found him to be a lively, friendly little man who at once gave orders that a spare house in the square should be hung with hammocks for our reception. When he heard that we proposed to give a ball, he rejoiced much and took it upon himself to prepare all the preliminaries. He ordered the largest room in the village to be emptied and to be laid down with the most luxurious carpet that could be found in Uruguay. For in this land, carpets are laid down, not taken up, in view of a ball, and indeed a carpet is preferable to a mud floor, especially for bare feet. I don't suppose there was another carpet in the town, and that this was kept for such occasions as the present. Tallow dips and petroleum lamps were hung about in the ballroom, and the portion of the veranda opposite it was rendered gay with half a dozen Chinese lanterns. At 8 p.m., several crackers were let off outside, for this is the Paraguayan mode of issuing invitations to a ball and letting the guests know that all is ready. Then the aristocracy of the place poured into the room with all their little finery about them, merry, determined to be pleased. A few of the women wore in their hair the national golden comb, but there are not many of these now in the poor country, for nearly all the native jewelry was melted down in the cruel war the patriotic women giving up their ornaments to Lopez that he might mold them into cannon, as was literally done, many of the captured guns at the Parque de Buenos Aires containing much gold in their composition. Outside the ballroom squatted many of the poorer women, with bottles of gin and bits of chipa before them, vending refreshments, for these poor creatures never omit a chance of earning a little money generally to find its way into the pocket of some idle and worthless lover. Our band of four musicians was really good, for this people is endowed with much musical taste, which was fostered by the Jesuits. The dancing was, of course, perfect of its kind. The Paraguayans danced even better than the Argentines, and the Palomita, one of their favorite measures, is very beautiful and I should say would cause a furor if produced on the stage of our opera house. All smoked. It was curious to see a girl and her partner puffing away at their long cigars across each other's shoulders while waltzing vigorously. The jefe would not hear of our leaving Origua this day, but insisted on our staying till tomorrow, the great feast of the Santa Rosa, during which, he said, there will be great doings. You will not regret having waited with us. You will see. We were introduced to the clergyman of this little flock, who was certainly one of the most remarkable members of his profession we have ever come across. The padre was a very stout and jovial man, of pure Guarani blood. No article of his attire, save perhaps the collar of his coat, betokened his sacred calling. He wore a very broad-brimmed straw hat, no boots, and was an exceedingly slovenly and unshaven old gentleman. He was certainly the very typical Paraguayan person. He could only speak his own native Indian dialect, and he knew nothing of Spanish, save for the names for beer and a few other luxuries. He had been a brave soldier under Lopez, they say, for priests as well as women and children fought in that terrible war. But he had degenerated into one of the most profligate, lazy, drunken old rascals it was possible to imagine. His head was very much too big for his body, as is not uncommon among this people, 
and was illuminated by a perpetual smile. He had a parrot in the veranda outside his house, whom he had taught to imitate the sound of weeping women at funerals, the mumbling of the Latin church service, which the bird, I am sure, understood just as well as his owner, and several indecencies and blasphemies. The way in which this reverend gentleman passes his life is somewhat as follows. He gets drunk regularly twice a day and is on each occasion put in his hammock by the young women who dwell in his house and who bear relations towards him which are of far from doubtful character to sleep off the effects of the kanya. His children, for of these he has a nursery full, meanwhile fanning him into a refreshing slumber. Between these orgies, unless they have been too severe, he delivers mass at his church, but generally with a full stomach and not fasting, as the canons order. As he waddles off to church, he is always followed by fifty women or so, clad in white and droning hymns in Guarani. The mistress of the priest is one of the great ladies of Aregua, for this post is considered an honor in this queer, demoralized country. The padre is great at raising collections and combines with his pastorship the profession of usurer, for he advances sums to his parishioners that have good security to show at the moderate interest of 60%. Notwithstanding all his faults and his gross ignorance about everything, he is loved, revered, and thought much of by these poor deluded people. I may state that in honor of our arrival he got very drunk and publicly notified that he would be incapacitated from opening the church for mass during our stay. August 30th was the feast of the Santa Rosa. This is, in the river plate, an ill-omened day, fraught with storms and disaster. But in Paraguay it is always the occasion of much merrymaking. The jefe undertook to take us to a great festival and baile that was to take place some four leagues off. My readers will doubtless complain that all I have to describe of my Paraguayan experiences are the perpetual balls, and that I really saw nothing else of the customs and habits of the people. This may be true, but be it remembered that dancing is the life of this race, the one object of existence to which all else is subservient. A woman will save penuriously for months that she may contribute to one of the great public balls, such as this one that I am about to describe. It was arranged that we should travel with the aristocracy of Aregua in a trolley to the festival and that each of us should take charge of a lady. My partner of the last ball, who gloried in the possession of boots and a golden comb, kindly honored me by selecting me as her escort. Early in the morning, we Englishmen waited at the railway station for our companions. Soon we heard a tremendous din of bells on the hill and beheld the whole population of Regua flocking into the church. The service was of about three minutes' duration only. I don't suppose our padre was given to long sermons. Then all the people poured out again, and forthwith, forming into procession, descended the grassy hill towards us. It was a curious sight. First came the fat padre on his palfrey, then women bearing aloft a little, gaily-dressed doll, the Santa Rosa, then all the white-robed women of Aregua, chanting a melancholy dirge, and lastly, the jefe, the carpenter, and others, who seemed to think themselves too important to mingle in a religious procession. On reaching the railway, all of the people, save for the few who were to travel by trolley, 
hurried off to the scene of the festival on foot, some bearing the image of the saint, the others carrying on their heads provisions of different kinds. They stalked out gradually along the line, a good-natured, laughing mob bent on pleasure. The trolley was drawn up. First, two cases of beer, our votive offering, was placed on it. Then we ascended, the four Englishmen, the Heffy, the Carpenter, the Padre, who preferred traveling with us to leading the procession, being, as he himself confessed, more partial to beer than to Santa Rosa, and seven ladies, one for each gallant to look after, and very pretty they appeared to be as they sat there excited, happy, and laughing, with all their finery on and roses in their raven locks. Our motive power consisted of two men who pushed the crazy trolley along the ill-laid metals. The padre much pitied their labors and was continually calling for a halt that they might rest and that he himself might indulge in another bottle of his favorite beer. At last we reached a point on the railway that was the nearest to our destination and the trolley was brought to. Here we found seven horses awaiting us, which the seven men mounted, each taking a fair one behind him. The ladies thought this was great fun, though they were rather timid at first, and made many excuses in the soft Gorani that we could not in any way understand, but their pastor soon conquered their scruples, and himself leaping on a horse, took a buxom girl up behind him and galloped on to show the way. After riding a few miles through the odorous groves of orange and citron, we came to an open place where there was a great white crowd and a sound of music and merriment. There were here collected about five hundred women and one hundred men, all clad in white, save for the occasional scarlet ponchos that some of the men wore. Very few had boots. It was a happy, childish assembly. There were no quarrels, and none of the men seemed to carry knives behind them, very different indeed from the wild, murderous race meetings of the gauchos of the Pampas. The revelers, indeed, bore far more resemblance to clean children at a school treat in an English village than to anything else I can think of. Here was a people well in harmony with its constant associations of perfect climate, birds and flowers and fruits, innocent and natural, and these are heroes too, though they evidently know it not, too perfectly brave to be aware of the fact. The women are proud in the simple manner of their beauty and skill in the dance. The men seem to be proud of nothing, yet these are the enduring stolid men and women that in the war, as Surgeon Skinner tells us, bore amputations without cry or wince of pain, though no chloroform had been administered to them. This was what may be termed a subscription picnic, for all here had contributed something towards it. Each woman had brought on her head provisions of some kind, were it only a bowl of milk or a little mandioca, and all shared alike when the dinner was laid out at the long deal tables under the palm trees. Many a one of these clean and tidy women had not in the world save the dress she wore, no house, no bed, and yet supported some lazy lord on the profits of her lace-making. Perhaps she had toiled for months in order to save enough for this festival of the Santa Rosa, for not only had she her own contributions to think of, but she must needs turn out her rascally lover on that day in a clean shirt, a new pair of pantaloons, and a pocketful of silver Bolivians to lay on his prize-fighting cock in the pit. For the Paraguayan is far from free from the usual South American passion for gambling. 
I believe that nine out of ten men at that festival were thus dependent on the industrious women who washed their clothes for them, cooked their chipa, and give them all their little earnings. The first thing we did on our arrival on the scene was to pay our respects to our host, an old gentleman who occupied a small house and had the honor of sheltering within it the doll Santa Rosa during the feast. We seven men and seven ladies, whose aristocratic and booted forms seemed to inspire the revelers with great respect, dismounted and crawled into the house, which was something like a big beehive, with a door not more than three feet high. We then found ourselves in a small, windowless room, at one corner of which was a little table on which stood the image of the saint with three lit candles before her, and around many not untasteful decorations composed of flowers, native lace, and the feathers of gorgeous parrots and hummingbirds. Not much respect seemed to be paid for her saintship, for Padre and all drank, smoked, and sang Bacchanal and other very secular songs in her presence, the latter not badly accompanied by the Padre on his guitar. We were glad to escape from the stifling atmosphere of the room to see the fun outside. The baile was being vigorously carried on under a large palmetto-thatched open shed, notwithstanding the intense heat. It had commenced at nine this morning and would doubtless continue all through the sultry day, all night, all the morrow, and indeed till food and drink for this multitude fell short, when each merry girl would trudge back to her home to work like a slave while the men slept until the next fiesta. Besides the dancing, there were other amusements to attract the pleasure-seeker such as scratch-horse racing, cock-fighting, and tilting at the ring at full gallop, a pretty pastime in which some of the men were very skillful. The ring used is not much bigger than a wedding ring, and the lance, a small wooden skewer, not much more than a foot long. When it was time for the midday dinner, the people sat down at long deal tables to a very substantial repast. We aristocrats were forced to dine in the stifling room where the Santa Rosa was. Our meal was a luxurious one, chipa, roast parrots, and stewed iguana or lizard being but a few of the many delicacies that were spread before us. The padre did not dine with us, as he had drunk himself into a state of imbecility, as is his wont on every such occasion. The women of the place had tucked his fat carcass into a hammock and were engaged in fanning his apoplectic-looking visage. Women in all lands show much affection for the ministers of the church, but the devotion of the Paraguayan women towards their pastors altogether outdoes anything in the way of curate worship at home. It was very sad for us to observe what a lot these kindly girls made of that horrid old man. While he thus lay drunk, a boy crawled through the door to ask for his blessing, whereupon the priest swore softly but horribly and waved him off. Not today, not today, those farces, he said. Tomorrow, today is the Santa Rosa, and I am drunk, very drunk. And this in the very presence of the illuminated saint. As is the custom of the country, our seven fair companions did not sit down with us to dinner, but stood by, serving us silently with all we wanted. When we had concluded our repast, the damsels sat down in their turn while we stood behind them. From time to time, one of them would take up a delicate morsel on her fork and hand it up to her cavalier to eat, a pretty little attention that is another custom of the country. 
At six in the evening we rode away to the station so as to catch our trains into Asuncion. The young ladies saw us off and presented us with flowers and sweetmeats to take with us. Then came the farewells, which brought tears into the eyes of these sympathetic daughters of the tropics. And the train started. End of chapter 26